Our Bible reading this morning comes from four different passages, Ephesians, Peter 1, Peter 2, and Timothy. So our first reading is from Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been now being announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. And from 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the more certain prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And then 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. We begin a new series this morning. Uh, In fact, in one sense, we we did one of these in the first uh, week of December, coming into Christmas. So if you want the full box set of five, they... uh, that one should come into this series, but we're looking at the foundations of faith, foundations of our, or of a firm faith. And uh, uh, this touches on those beliefs that were particularly um, 
important in the days of the Reformation in the 16th century as the church got its act together again. And we were looking at four of the five uh, foundational truths upon which the church is built. As uh, that was read to us in the first reading this morning from Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, we're reminded that uh, we are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And then the writer goes on to spell out the architecture of that house, something about its, its engineering, that it's built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's a diagram I'd like to uh, show you of that verse, if we can whip that up. That's the one. <laughs> what a team. <laughs> but uh, th this verse is really saying something that the, the readers would have understood very clearly. Uh, the way buildings were constructed in the days of the apostles. And it's saying that in this building, like in any building, it's only as strong as that cornerstone. And that cornerstone must remain Christ. That's how Christ has constructed his church. That you can't go far wrong if you're emphasising Christ in a church. That church will last. But beside this, there were two stones that led into that cornerstone in the architecture of ancient buildings. They were all built the same if they intended to stand. And these were called foundation stones. And the foundation stone that led up to the cornerstone was the prophets of the Old Testament, the canonical prophets. And the foundation stone that led away from Christ performed a similar function. It was the second most important stone. It was the apostles. And that's what he's saying here. And so I'm looking through this month at those foundations upon which this church and any church that's going to last will stand. And uh, the teaching of the prophets and the apostles is foundational to that. And that's the way we remain in Christ. When I, I'm telling my life story this morning it seems, but when uh, I was a teenager my parents decided to move to Blackburn and uh, they picked up a house that was on Blackburn Road, which was a main road, but not the road it is today when we moved in. And very quickly, the, uh, the Board of Works, or whoever it was in those days, decided to widen Blackburn Road because of Monash University down the other end and the flow of traffic. So we went from a two-lane road out the front of our house to a four-lane road with a median strip and parking bits along the side. Very quickly, there was a lot of noise outside our house as people started using that main road. My father decided that being the physicist that he was, that uh, he, uh, he, there's a way to beat this. If you build a wall high enough, <laughs> the sound won't get over it and you'll, you'll be able to you know, sleep through the traffic sort of thing. And so they contracted this uh, bricky from... Uh, uh, Willsey, I think he came from. And this fellow said that he could have this wall built in front of our property, sort of an L-shaped wall. He could have it done in two days. We'd whip it in, whip it out, no worries. Uh, he might have to leave a day for the foundations to set in the middle, but he'd basically take two days. 
And sure enough, in one day, they built the foundations and laid this conflict, uh, this steel-reinforced concrete along the front of our property, and it was a bit of a side wall too, and, and uh, it all looked very impressive. I'd go to uni and then come back, and uh, you know, there it was. Things were happening. And the second day, um, I remember most of the wall was built. And I thought, my, these guys are real bricklayers par excellence. Except they hadn't counted on my perfectionistic mother. And uh, she came out and had a look and scraped along the foundation. And she found that they'd begun on the foundation, but there was a slight curve in the wall. My father, who came home, is more pragmatic. He said, oh, that won't worry, that's okay. And, but as she scraped along the foundation with her foot, she found that the wall bent and went out on the dirt and then came back again onto the foundation. Well, that couldn't, wouldn't do. So she got my dear father onto the blower to ring the guy in Whittlesea to say that wall had to come down. The bricklayer was pretty unimpressed by that and he said, I'm not taking it down, you have to take it down yourself. And so my mother did, brick by brick. <laughs> and it took her hours into the night. The bricklayer arrived at the crack of dawn the next day to find yesterday's work was totally undone. He couldn't understand why. It was a big wall, it was a strong wall, it was an impressive wall. Trouble was, the next rain, if we left it there, that wall would come a-tumbling down as the ground would be a different constituency to the foundation. As the clay moved, so would the wall. And that's what God is saying through Paul here, that the church that moves off its foundations is in big trouble. There's two problems through church history. Church history can be summarised through two things. One is an attack on the foundations. And uh, right through the 18th century in particular, uh, through the rise of reason and rationalism and the Enlightenment, even people who called themselves theologians attacked their own foundations. Anything supernatural in the scripture was to be disbelieved. It had a devastating impact on the Western church and so much good that had happened in the Reformation was undone in liberal Protestantism. But those days are sort of always with us but the foundation stood despite the attack. And you and I are here in a Bible-believing church as testimony to that. The trouble is, the church is still liable to build the wall off the foundations. And it does that whenever it makes something else but the concrete of the Word of God foundational. When it tries to supplement what God has done. And a lot of the history of the Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church and the fight, theological fight there that became a political fight, is over that, that Rome had the scriptures, but it also had the words of the Pope. And in a sense, that never leaves us. I'm not saying the Roman Church is damned, etc., but it's precarious when it gets off the foundations, when it supplements the the foundations that God has, with something less solid. But we too, we evangelicals, are still liable in this day to put a curve on the wall. 
any time we think that we can move away from that which God has made foundational. Well, that's an introduction to the whole series. Today I want to look at the first uh, alone statement in the Reformation. The Reformation basically said there are five things which you've got, five boxes you've got to tick to remain a godly church. Christ alone. We've looked at that, we have a song that says that. Marvellous, Christ alone, the cornerstone. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and to God be the glory alone. They're the five. And hopefully we'll look at four of those in this month. Today looking at Jesus, uh, the, the attitude to Scripture. Now, this is not how I usually preach. We're going to do a little bit of a Bible study. I hope you can tolerate studying the Bible in church. <laughs> but uh, it's a little more of a jump around. And the reason why I'm doing that is that I, I want you to sense that this, there's a great weight of truth here. This is, I don't want to proof text what I'm saying with one text. I want to give you the sense that there is so much said about this. I could have developed a sermon that went on for three hours. I know, I often get close, but uh, I could have done that. There's that much on this topic in Scripture itself. So I'm looking at why Scripture is foundational and what that means for how we practice the faith. I just want to look at three things. I want to look at Jesus' attitude to Scripture... And I have a little uh, set of notes there that some of you would have received as you came in. If anyone wants them, maybe there's some still lying around. Some people find that handy. Does that, just pop your hand up if you, if you need some. I don't know, maybe you've all got them. Very good. I hope that helps rather than confuses. And uh, I'll autograph them later if that helps. <laughs> but uh, let's look at Jesus' attitude to the Scriptures. Um, firstly, Jesus had an attitude to the Old Testament. Remember when he came, the New Testament had not been written. It's about him. In fact, the Old Testament is about him too. And in his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says to those who are listening, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, a little letter, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven when that comes. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 to 19. It's clear that Christ venerated the scriptures. They spoke of his agenda. They spoke of where he was heading. And that's the way he, he developed his ministry. If you read all the Gospels, as the conflict rises around the time he is arrested, he is challenged by Pharisees and Sadducees, but particularly the Sadducees, who often mocked his attitude to the Scriptures. And they'd throw riddles at him, like the riddle about the woman with seven husbands. Who's she going to be married to in the resurrection, they said. Jesus' answer is interesting. He says, you are wrong, you Sadducees. They were like the high church liberals of his day. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Those two things go together. You can't say you know the actual God and disparage the scriptures. 
or when they questioned him on, the, on divorce, you know, what about easy come, easy go divorce, they said. And he answers them, have you not read, speaking of the scriptures, that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and then he trots out Genesis 2:24 from the old book. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. What God has joined, he said, as we say in the wedding service, let not man put asunder. The acts of God are definitive and they're read in the scriptures. For Christ, and anyone therefore who would make Christ the cornerstone of their faith, it would seem that he ended debate with the authority of the scriptures. That was the end of argument. Uh, we even look after, after his ministry, the same goes. Remember the story of the disciples going along the road to Emmaus uh, and uh, they're, they're dragging their feet, they're heading away from Jerusalem and he catches them up and he says, what are you talking about? They say, haven't you heard the news you know, about the, the Christ who had died? We'd hoped he was going to be the Messiah that would save Israel. Interestingly, they're really down on their luck, they're really suffering they've just lost their best friend and saviour and what does Jesus say there there I know how that feels uh-huh uh-huh no he says are you foolish people who are slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken and beginning from the law and the prophets he explained to them as they walked along that that whole book spoke of him Verse after verse. Wouldn't that have been a sermon to hear? What an education. In other words, Christ had no sympathy for people, regardless of their time of life, who did not build upon their faith upon the foundation of Scripture. Then, as we looked in when we were doing our series on John's Gospel, he pointed ahead in his ministry, when he was gone, that he would set up an apostolic ministry through the work of the Holy Spirit. But what was that work going to be? What was the Holy Spirit going to do? John 14, 26, he said, But the help of the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. So the premier work of the Holy Spirit was to bring to mind those things which he wanted the apostles to store. There is no idea here that when Christ goes, his teaching goes with him. There is no idea here that the Old Testament would become redundant and scriptures would not be needed because we're going to walk in the Spirit now, in autopilot. That's not a Christian concept. It crops up in church history, it infiltrates the church periodically, but it is not the teaching of Christ. The Holy Spirit's job was to point backwards to Jesus Christ, lest they forget his teaching. We today are meant to be founded on the cornerstone, the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on, when the Spirit of truth comes, chapter 16, he'll guide you into all the truth. For he won't speak on his own authority, but over he hears, he will speak. And he'll declare to you the things that have come, like the prophets did. 
He will glorify me, for he'll take of mine and declare it to you. Speaking to the apostles. In other words, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will not have his own agenda. He won't be freelancing. The Holy Spirit's agenda will be to point to the scriptures and to enlighten the apostles to continue a tradition. A tradition with content, not just experience, but a tradition that relates to Jesus Christ. Lo and behold, we shouldn't be surprised then, point two, when we come to the apostles, we see their attitude to scripture matches Jesus. They understood their role. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Romans 15, 14. That through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, you haven't got a future if you haven't got the scriptures. Hope is based on content. The content of God's word. Hope is a foundational thing. It's not hope in hope. It's not something that's worked up within ourselves. Hope is not a mystical experience. Hope for the Christian, for the biblical person, for the person of God, is based on the content of what God has revealed. Peter agrees with Paul on this. He says, concerning this salvation, I find this a wonderful passage. It was read to us earlier this morning. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings in Christ and the the subsequent glories. The, The old prophets used to wonder when they knew that God was sending his his Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. When would that happen? Who would this be? Let us in on the secret. But they are in the dark. And, And God pointed out that what they were writing, it says there, the way it puts it there, Peter puts it there, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves or their generation, but you our generation, in the things that have been announced to you. So even those Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, in fact, the word prophets in this age meant the whole of the Old Testament. All that was for us. That's the view of the apostles. And God's intention was for a contemporary readership of his old word. The apostles too, like the prophets, are authoritative. They speak forth God's truth. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2 has a fascinating little, I only saw this yesterday uh, and I'd, I'd missed it. And he says, this is my second letter, Peter says. I'm writing this to you, my beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder. So this is something that they knew, but they're liable to forget. This is something we know. I know this is not rocket science, but we are, in our practice, liable to forget it. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. The apostles are meant to be taken seriously, as seriously as the word of the prophets and the word of the Lord. That's how it is transmitted to us. The apostles then also turn attention to themselves. 
in verses 15 and 16, Peter speaks about Paul. He calls him our beloved Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in, these, in them of these matters. He goes on, he says, I can understand there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction. He's writing about theologians there, I think. But, or the new perspective, as they do the other scriptures. Notice that the assumption there is that Paul is writing scripture. If there is a set of scriptures, it includes those books of Moses and the prophets, the words of the apostles and Paul also get put into that set. They're all part of the same canon of scripture. The canon means an authoritative collection. How should we write them? I think it's an interesting passage, that strange one that was read in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Peter points out that he once had an amazing experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he retells it, he says, we weren't making up cleverly devised myths when we said when we talked about that. We were there, we saw that. This was part of our experience. It changed our life, seeing Jesus on the mountain in clothes that glowed and there with the, the great prophetic figures of Israel on that holy mountain. So he's trying to encourage them that they should regard them seriously as authoritatively because of their experience. But if that's not enough, he says... We've heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. If that's not enough, verse 19, we have the more certain prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention. We have the more certain prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. We live in an age which is experience-oriented, Christian age. The subjective side of the Christian life gets people out of bed. It excites people. We are drowning in subjectivity, if you ask me. But for the Apostle Peter, there's something more, much more important for the future of the church than subjective experience. It's the more sure, or even the most sure, prophetic word. That trumps experience every day. It's a much bigger card in the pack. We should trust the word of God. If you trust experience, then you should trust more the prophetic word of God. I think one of the saddest things I've seen in my experience as a pastor is people who have trusted human prophets, not the biblical prophets, but these self-appointed types who come and go and drift across our nation. They've come through the churches I've been in and always reaped havoc to the faith of people there. They come and they go. Because people have this sense that they need to experience something rather than trust the objective word of God, the prophets. I can remember being in church about this time last year, the, our church, I won't name it, but uh, we, we developed this new group who came into our church and sometimes when the music played particularly well and swelled, you'd get that little silence at the end of the song and a, a couple of uh, middle-aged women folk would speak in tongues or they would go into some sort of glossolalic ecstasy. 
And uh, some of us were concerned about this because it was out of place, as Paul says, in public worship. So then what would happen is that some of their friends in later services would start interpreting the tongue, so they said. And that didn't so much disturb me. I've seen that sort of thing since I was this high and it didn't really disturb me. I don't think it's essential. But the way it was treated in our church was like it was a new toy, some wonderful new thing. And the song would be sung, there'd be the silence, there'd be this little bit of glossolalia, and then we'd have the prophets give some sort of interpretation. The trouble is you'd get a little tongue about five-second clip, and then you'd have 20 seconds of interpretation from one person, 20 seconds over there from another one, and another one, we'd have someone telling us that God's telling us that their back is going to get better, and another person telling us who's going to win the next election, and another person to... And uh, if it wasn't for Kay's size 9 stiletto, I was tempted to yell out sometimes myself, you know, lock in C! No, no, <laughs> because that sort of nonsense does no credibility for the truth, the objective truth of the gospel. And I've seen more people leave the church over that sort of thing and leave the faith altogether because it's incredible. What disturbed me most of all was not the phenomenon. It was the valuation of the worship leader. At the end of that time or the end of our worship, the worship leader would often say, we have had the word of God in two forms this morning. I bet. The sermon and the prophecy. Had we? Was that prophecy? Was that from God? I don't think so. We take an awful lot on faith when we trust human beings who need a stage. We did have the word of God in certainty in the word of God preached and for that we should have given thanks. But to put those things on the same level is heresy. Subjective words are at best an encouragement to ourselves, but they are not authoritative like the objective word of God. And I can introduce you to people who have wrecked their financial situation and their families because they've made decisions on the basis of someone who spoke into their lives. That is not scriptural. We're not told to give our allegiance to people. We're to give it to Christ. He is the head over all rule and authority. Not some person who needs to feel superior and make you feel inferior and then sell you their domination. That's not the ministry of Jesus Christ. Please, be a little bit more wise than that. That's not the foundation. That's getting off the track. That's supplementary. That'll bring down the wall. It won't build it up. We don't need it. Lastly, we come to the Spirit's attitude to Scripture. Sometimes people say to me, if only we could hear from the Holy Spirit. And I sort of go, we have. <laughs> Um, if he can talk, he superintends the writing of Scripture itself. The wonderful passage that was read to it says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man 
biblical prophecy this is, but men spoke from God as they carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a picture, a nautical picture, like the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race. That's about the only part of the race I like watching. <laughs> it gets a bit boring after that, doesn't it? But uh, you, you see those boats tacking across the, the, the harbour, almost colliding and gliding. And you know that that's where the boat is, but you also know that's where the breeze is. And that's the, the nature of Scripture. It has two dimensions always. It, it is both divine and human. The Scriptures, uh, you can look at them and they're entirely human. They're, they show the personality of each writer. God gives each writer poet's license to be themselves. And this passage, is, is we should rem remember, is saying that the, the, the Holy Spirit superintends that writing, that movement, that creative movement and flair of the writer. He doesn't stomp it out. Some people sometimes, trying to uphold the authority of Scripture, have invented theories of inspiration, which are more like dictation. This is the way the Quran evidently came. The prophet was told to write X, Y, and Z. And some people think that that's how the scriptures came. The scriptures don't claim that. They claim that men were moved by the spirit, the spirit was part of it, but they still were entirely human. Because the scriptures are divine, we stand under them, we obey them, we submit to them. Because the scriptures are human, we can interpret them. They're in our world sphere. And the same principles of interpreting any literature can be used with the scriptures. That's exactly how God wanted it. He wanted the scriptures to be accessible. To, to read the Quran properly, you have to understand Arabic. They can only be heard in one version. But the scriptures can be translated because it's through the scriptures that the message of God is enabled to come. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit, what he wants to do in you one of the primary things he wants to do in your life is to enable you to interpret the scriptures. That's an astonishing thing. And this is what the, the, uh, the theologians and the ancient divines call the doctrine of eye, on your notes, for illumination. He shines light where there is shadow. This is the work of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But we haven't received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, we all know that, why did we receive him? That we might understand the things that are freely given by God. The Holy Spirit is given so that you might not be dependent on me or the Pope or the Cardinals or some enthusiastic prophet but you might have access to the word of God yourself the spirit of God is not elitist he's a democratic spirit he wants the people of God to understand the mind of God what a gift we have and so we finally come to the great passage where it was read to us that uh, Paul encourages people to continue in those things that they have been taught there is not a time ever spoken about in Scripture where we are told that you can now put the Word of God aside. 
and you can just live in the Spirit. That is to divide the Spirit and the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word of God go together like hand in glove. They cannot be separated. Any teaching that wants to tell you that now you can rely upon the Holy Spirit and put aside the Word of God is from the pit of hell. It is utterly destructive to the foundation of God. He founds us upon the Scriptures. I have absolutely no time for that sort of teaching. If I was a pastor in this church, I would confront that head on because it usurps the authority of the head who is Jesus Christ. And Paul says to young Timothy, and Timothy's letter is meant to be read within the earshot of the whole church. Paul doesn't mind people reading Tim's mail. And he says, all scripture, and we know that all scripture now is both the word of the prophets and the word of the apostles. And the word of Christ. All scripture is God-breathed or inspired. Literally the word means God-breathed. You notice it says all scripture is God-breathed. It doesn't say the scriptural writers were God-breathed. If it was just the apostles that were inspired, as an artist is inspired then that word would not be authoritative, it might be a blessing to us. But this word, God breathed, applies to the finished product, the Scriptures. In other words, the Scriptures as we have them, as you have them on your lap this morning, are as God intended. Sure, there have been various textual emendations in the early centuries. We're pretty sure we've got down to what the original was. We're pretty close to that. But those scriptures are exactly what God intended. They're God-breathed. The outcome is God-breathed. He's happy with them. This is why the word inerrant is used with regard to the scriptures. Or the Brits prefer to use the word infallible. In other words, they'll get you to the goal. They got God, the end product, that he wanted. Scripture. That means... They are infallible. And they're profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. If you are complete for every good work, what else do you need? You don't need a vitamin supplement to that diet, do you? If the scriptures are complete and they complete you for every good work, a new teaching can come along, a new vision can come along, a new word from God can come along, but you don't need it. Because the scriptures are for that. And you're entirely complete when you have the scriptures. That's the basis of the doctrine we call inerrancy. That's the end of the story. We can summarise this teaching down in terms of the Holy Spirit's goals at the bottom of the page of the notes today. The Holy Spirit's goals are to lead us to trust Christ. That's his number one goal. 
that you would have a faith that stands in the wind and flame and rain, to trust Jesus Christ. And for that reason, he has given us his text through his infallible external word. We need a trig point, not within our feelings. We need something solid and external that we can hang our anchor on, and that's the word of God. And he's given us that, the external word, which is internally confirmed. The Holy Spirit is in you to say, yes, this is my word. And it may not happen immediately, but the longer you walk with Jesus Christ and read his word prayerfully, his Holy Spirit will tell you, this is true, this is true, this is true. You can trust it. Bit by bit, you'll gradually love the word of God. And days without the word of God will be days of starvation and distance. You'll want to be with God because that's what the Spirit is working to reveal Christ through his word and can confirm to us and make us sufficient for ministry, whatever ministry God has for you and for all time. If you're going to be developing people in discipleship, the one thing you've got to build into them is how to read the Bible and why you read the Bible. I cannot stress that enough. You know, you can take people to great events the memory of those will evaporate. But the word of God will be with those people and it will not depart from them, as the psalmist says. Well, folks, that's a massive amount to take in this morning. But I cannot emphasise, if you want to hear the tape again at some time, do so, because this is crucial. To finish with another cutesy childhood story, I want to tell you about my fifth birthday. When I uh, was five, my parents weren't all that flush with money, but they always went to trouble with birthdays to buy us gifts. My mother, trying to influence my career path, decided to buy me a doctor's kit. And uh, she bought me, or her her sister and her, made a a little kit up, and inside the kit was a little box of Band-Aids, stethoscope, a little bit of bandage, harmless stuff and some blunt scissors that wouldn't cut anything, especially me. There we have it, doctor's kit that had my name, Dr. Jeff Pugh, on the, on the top in Dymo labelling. Remember that stuff? And uh, my father, wanting to influence me in the direction of being an evangelist, uh, bought me, at five, a authorised version study Bible. <laughs> <laughs> takes all sorts and uh, and an auntie who'd forgotten my birthday present um, handed me over a box of texter colors do you remember texter colors pull the lids off and you could you know use them for incendiary devices I reckon they you know that real strong smell and uh, they're indelible the first bright and I like drawing with those Anyway, that was the end of my fifth birthday. I went to bed that night. In the middle of the night, I woke up with that glow of, I've got presents. <laughs> and I remembered the presents I had. And the, the light was filtering through from the station and the distance uh, through. And I suddenly got this great idea. Why don't I put my name with the text of colours into my new Bible? And that would be good because even though I was five, I could write out all three words in my name. 
some in capitals and some lowercase. And so in the dim moonlight, I opened the front page of the Bible and, and uh, the, the bit of cardboard paper, and I got out the purple, the papal purple texter. <laughs> and I, I wrote Jeffrey Ray Ma oops, <laughs> de Pew. <laughs> And it was all sort of wet and glowing, and I could hold it up in the moonlight, and I thought I'd done a marvellous thing, and I was appreciating my work. And I'm just about to go back to sleep and pop it back into the library above my, my uh, shelf above my desk, when suddenly I turned the next page, and I noticed Jeffrey Raymond had come through that. <laughs> all the way through to Second Chronicles. Was <laughs> and I thought, oh, my goodness, no. And uh, what was I going to do? And so... In a frantic moment, I decided, oh, goodness, what can I... I'd also been given Band-Aids, hadn't I? <laughs> and so I whipped out the 200 Band-Aid box and started pasting Band-Aids over Jeffrey Raymond. Put it, and then I ran out of Band-Aids and I've still got one and two Chronicles to go. And I, so I started using the tabs and pressing it down. And then I wanted to put it back in the library, but now it was sort of wedge-shaped. And I, I was thinking, what can I do? So... I got an idea, I put it around this way and you could squeeze it in between Rudyard Clippling and other books there and uh, put it down. I thought, oh, that was a night's work and fell asleep. You won't believe this. My father, who has only got partial sight in one eye, came and inflicted on my light the next morning and I cannot repeat what came out of his Christian mouth. <laughs> he, his eye went straight to it. I don't know why, but there it was. What have you done? And for punishment, they took away, the doctors said, and they took away the Bible and the texters, last of all. <laughs> but I learned a salient lesson, which I leave with you this day, that you cannot, even though your, your aims may be good, you cannot supplement and improve the word of God and you don't need to cover up the embarrassing bits. It's authoritative, and it just needs to be read. And that will set your life for a fruitful course in the future. Let's give God thanks this morning. Our Lord and God, we thank you for being born in this time where we have your word, the sure word, the more sure word, the inspired word, the infallible word, the trustworthy word. We thank you for that because we want to get a grip on Christ, the cornerstone. We thank you that through him and this word, we will know you and see you. We want to see Jesus, Lord, clearly articulated in our own thoughts, in our own prayers, in our own experience. We pray for this, Lord, and give you thanks for what you have done through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.